especially here at the beginning of the message, we're going to do some looking back through John 7 and 8. So having a, an open Bible will be helpful for you. There's notes in the bulletin you can follow along with what we're going to talk about this morning. This morning we are wrapping up a section of the Gospel of John, John 7 and John 8. It's a couple of chapters that go together, and if you've been here for the last couple of weeks, you've heard me say this multiple times, John 7 and John 8 took place in Jerusalem during the Feast of Booths, also known as the Feast of Tabernacles. So just to lay the stage one last time in this section, it's fall, we're in Jerusalem, many pilgrims have traveled to the city to celebrate this very important feast. They're giving thanks, among other things, for the fall harvest. They're thankful for another year's crop that has come in. They're also looking back and they're celebrating the exodus. And they're remembering that when God sent Moses, we're going to talk about Moses later this morning, when God sent Moses to Pharaoh to lead the people out of slavery into the wilderness and they're leaving Egypt, they lived in tents. Right? They were nomads. They're just sort of moving from place to place, living in tents. And they're especially remembering that God himself, Yahweh, came and lived among them in a tent. We call it the tabernacle. And so to celebrate all of this fall harvest and all that God had done in bringing them out, the people would go to Jerusalem and they would actually live in tents. They would spend the week living in these little sort of man-made temporary shelters, looking back and remembering all that God had done. That's the setting. Let me say just a word about the characters in this story. Jesus is obviously a character, but John is also going to mention the Jews. And we've talked about this in the Gospel of John. In this Gospel, John mentions the Jews 71 times. Almost all of those references, when he just sort of throws it out there and says, the Jews... He's talking about the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem in particular who actively oppose Jesus and want Jesus dead. This is not an ethnic thing. This is not a, a racial thing. This is not a prejudice thing on John's part. John is a Jew and Jesus is a Jew. But when he uses this phrase, the Jews, he's talking about the people who are actively in opposition against Jesus. And there's been conflict building between these groups. So if you look at our passage, you see in verse 48, the Jews answered him. If you look down in verse 52, the Jews said to him. If you look at verse 57, the Jews say to him again. It's Jesus versus the Jews, and it's the beginning of the end for this conflict. I've shared this with you. John 7 and 8 marks the beginning of Jesus' last fight with the religious leaders in Jerusalem. It's the beginning of the last fight. This conflict has been bubbling up. It's been present for a number of years. The decision to kill Jesus has already been made. But it's here in John 7 and 8 where Jesus really begins to pour gasoline on this fire. And I just want you to look at John 7 and 8. And I want to point out a few verses to you. Look at John chapter 7, verse 30. It says that they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Look at verse 32. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Look down at John 7, verse 44. It says some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. Flip over and look at chapter 8, verse 20. The scripture says, These words he spoke 
in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. Right? It's pretty clear these people wanted to arrest Jesus. The question is, as we look back, why are they so mad? Why now do they suddenly make this move to arrest Jesus? And I'd just like you to see it in the text. John 7, verse 19, Jesus says, Has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Jesus accused them of being lawbreakers. Look at chapter 8, verse 19. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? And Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. Jesus looked at them and said, you don't know the father. You don't know God. They heard that. They were angry about that. Look at chapter 8, verse 34. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. You don't know the father. You don't know God. You're a slave to your sins. And then they start to fire back at Jesus. If you look at chapter 8, verse 41, they say, You are doing the works your father did. And they said to him, We were not born of sexual immorality. We've talked about this. This is sort of a a backhanded jab at Mary. We know that there were funny things going on with your parents. We know the rumors. We've heard the stories. We know what you were trying to cover up. They take a jab at Jesus, and Jesus fires right back in verse 44, and he says, you are of your father, the devil. That's gasoline on a fire. You are of your father, the devil. Verse 47, whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. You are not godly people. You don't fear him. You don't know him. You don't love him. You are not of God. I just want to make the simple observation that when this conversation is happening in John 7 and 8, these are the most religious people on planet earth. These people could answer more Bible questions than anyone else on planet earth. They're very, very religious. They're very, very informed. They're very, very spiritual. And Jesus looks at them and he says, you don't know God. It's a reminder to you and me who live in the Bible Belt, who have Bibles in our laps and on our phones and on the internet and Bible study materials available and we can freely gather in a place like this. You can be in the right place with the right people. You can answer all the right questions and you can still not know God. You can be far from him. That was true of these people and Jesus points it out. Our passage kicks off at verse 48 The Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? You are a Samaritan and you have a demon. That's sort of a a Jewish idiom. It's sort of a Jewish phrase that essentially means you're a heretic. You're a false teacher. You're on the other side. God's on our side and you're on that side. You're an outsider looking in, and Jesus says something that's truly remarkable. In fact, Jesus says it's truly, truly remarkable. Verse 51, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. That's the big idea of our passage this morning. Anyone who keeps Jesus' word will never see death. If you keep his word, you will never see death. That's straight from the lips of Jesus. It's part of this conversation that Jesus has been having with these people. It goes back at least to the middle of John chapter 8. 
If you look at John 8, verse 31, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him. Right? There's this group of people, this subset of the Jews who are actually believing. They're moving in the right direction. They're, they're trusting in Jesus. They're listening to Jesus, not to trap him, but to, to learn from him. And Jesus, to these people who believed in him, he begins to define what it means to believe. You and I hear this word believe and we think, oh yeah, that's you know the facts and you nod your head at them. I believe them. I believe my cell phone when it tells me it's 60 degrees today. I believe that, yes. There's knowledge and I accept it as true. There's more in John 8 than just knowing facts and nodding your head at the facts. Look what Jesus says, John 8, 31. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. That's part of what it means to believe in Jesus. Do you abide in his word? If you look over it, John chapter 8, verse 42, Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. That's part of what it means to believe in Jesus. It's not just an intellectual assent that you give to historical facts and data. It's a heartfelt love for Jesus Christ. What does it mean to believe? It means you abide. It means you love. John 8, 51. If anyone keeps my word... He will never see death. And we're going to talk this morning about what Jesus means when he says, if you keep my word, you will never see death. And so we're going to read the passage and then we're going to pray together. You follow along as we read the word of God beginning in John 8 verse 48. The scripture says this, the Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon. But I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died? And the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he's our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say to you that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and he went out of the temple. That's the word of God. Let's pray. Lord, this morning we come to the end of this section, the end of this chapter, the end of this back and forth between Jesus and the religious leaders. And Father, we pray first and foremost that you would guard our hearts from the danger of being religious 
spiritual, informed people and still not knowing you. Lord, our desire this morning is that we would know you. We would know the truth about you. As Jake prayed, we ask that you would take away our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. Father, we pray that the light that shone in the beginning of creation would shine in our hearts, that we would see the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ. Not only would we nod our head to it, but that we would love it, and we would keep it, and we would abide in it. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, I just want to jump in. I want to talk about truths about sin and salvation from John 8. And the first truth I want you to see is this. The wages of sin is death. We just need to be reminded from time to time that the wages of sin is death. It's not a major point in this passage, but it undergirds everything Jesus is saying in this passage. The wages of sin is death. That's how the Apostle Paul said it in Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death. Wages are something you earn. There's something that you do a work, you do something, and you have wages coming your way as a due, as something that that is now yours by right. And the Bible says that because you're a sinner, the wages that you have earned is death. What does he mean when he says the wages of sin is death? It means at least these things. I'll give you a list. Number one, physical death. If the Lord does not return, someday we will have your funeral. We will bury you. You will die physically. That's true for all of us. Physical death is part of what we're talking about. Emotional death is part of what we're talking about. That sense that you have in your heart that things just aren't right. That this world just won't fulfill everything that that you feel in your heart and everything that you long for in your heart. That sense of restlessness, that, that sense of incompleteness. Relational death. Right after Adam and Eve sinned against the Lord, they immediately turn on each other and begin to fight. And they blame each other and they argue. And that's true in your life. Sin leads to relational death. It leads to conflict in all of our relationships. It leads to spiritual death. The Bible describes this in a number of different ways. At times it says we have hearts of stone. It's like we have a rock in our chest. Our, our heart doesn't work properly. At, at times it describes us as being lost or as being blind, as being alienated from God. But all of these words are the same idea sort of being talked around that sin leads to spiritual death. It separates us from God and it leads to eternal death. In hell, apart from the presence of God, Forever. The wages of sin is death. And Jesus doesn't just come out and say it in this passage, but he certainly applies it in verse 51. He implies when he says, If anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. The obvious implication is if you don't keep Jesus' word, you will taste death. Those are the two categories that he's setting up. There are people who keep his word who will not taste death, and there are people who will not keep his word, who will certainly taste death. This is a universal human experience. The Jews point out Abraham died. They point out all the prophets died. The greatest heroes of the Old Testament, they all died. It's something that's coming for every last one of us. We know that we can't escape it, and yet we all hope that we might escape it, right? 
we all sort of get uncomfortable by the fact that we are certainly going to die. People have talked about this in different ways. Francis Bacon said, men fear death as children fear to go into the dark. It's just innate to us. We know it's out there. We know it's coming. It's uncertain to us. It's unknown to us. We just fear it. Woody Allen said it like this, I'm not afraid of death. I just don't want to be there when it happens. (laughs) Amen. I agree. One last quote about death. I think this is a good one. Will Rogers, the only difference between death and taxes is death doesn't get worse every time Congress meets. (laughs) Again, amen. Now look, this is one way to approach death. We can sort of come up with an acute, humorous way to talk about it and we can just laugh it off and hope that it doesn't come for us. Another route is to try to be logical about it to try to be rational about it. I came across an article posted online by Psychology Today. The article is titled, Facts to Calm Your Fear of Death and Dying. They're acknowledging we're afraid of death and dying. Here are some facts that will help you. Let's be rational about it. Let's reason together. Facts to calm your fear about death and dying. The first thing they say is most of us are afraid of death and dying because we're afraid it might hurt. We're afraid it will be painful. And they point out in the article that in your life you've experienced pain. So death won't be anything new. It will just be more of the same. That's a fact. You felt pain when you skinned your knee. You felt pain when you had a surgery. Death will be more pain. You don't need to fear it. You've already gone through it. Article goes on to say, many of us fear death and dying because of the unknown. We we fear this losing of consciousness. And they very helpfully point out in the article, this happens to you every night when you go to sleep. You lay down and you just sort of drift off and you lose consciousness. Maybe you've had this experience when you go in for a surgery and they put you under anesthesia and you just sort of drift off and they say, you've, you've gone through this before, you're just going to go through it again. Let's talk about the facts. You've had pain before and you've gone to sleep before and here's their advice at the end. Are you ready? You're going to die, so make the most of this life. The direct quote from the article, you'll find this very helpful, is grab life by the horns. To which we say, well, thank you very much for the facts about death and dying. I don't know about you, but I read that article and I say, I don't know that those facts help. I mean, they are facts. There is a rational element that maybe you can sort of think through the process of death and dying, but I think the biblical worldview offers a better answer. I think it offers a truer, more honest answer about death and dying. And the biblical worldview just comes on out and says it plainly. Death is an enemy. You know it is deep down. I mean, we can go to as many celebration of life services as we want to attend. It's a funeral. And someone's died. And there's an end. And there's a loss. And we look at that. And yes, there are times we can celebrate. But you come to a moment like that and you say, death is an enemy. You know it deep down in your gut. And the Bible just acknowledges it. Death is an enemy. And then the Bible goes a step further. It doesn't just give you something that's true. It gives you hope. And the Apostle Paul says it like this to the Corinthians, the last enemy to be destroyed is death, meaning 
this thing that you know is coming for you, this thing that you fear like children fear to go into the dark, this thing that makes you uneasy and unsettled, someday it's going away. Jesus lived on this earth a perfect life. He died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sins. He rose from the grave three days later, and Paul's conclusion from all of that is, one day this enemy will be destroyed. And you will know not death, but life. You know by now, that's why John wrote this gospel. Look at John 20, verse 30 and 31. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples. They're not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have not death, but life. Look, here's the story of the Bible. Are you ready? It's very simple. Left to yourself, what you have earned, what you have coming is death on all levels. Jesus came and he lived for you and he died for you and he defeated sin and death so that you could have life. Death is your due. Life is available through Jesus. So we just start off by reminding ourselves that the wages of sin is death. And secondly, there is life for people who believe. There is life for people who believe. I want you to look at your your copy of the scriptures again. I want to point out a few verses to you. Abraham has been at the center of this conversation. John 8, 39, they, the Jews, answered Jesus. Abraham is our father. So they bring up Abraham. Verse 41, Jesus says, you are doing the works your father did. And they said to him, we are not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God, and Jesus says, if God were your father, you would, you would love me. If you look just a little bit further at, at verse 51 in our passage, Jesus says, if you keep my word, you will never see death. He's holding out this hope of life. In verse 52 and 3, they bring up Abraham again. And the Jews said, now we know that you have a demon. Right Now we've got you backed into a theological corner. Now we've got something we can really hold against you. Abraham died. He died. And you're offering us life. But the great patriarch Abraham died and all the prophets died. And their question to Jesus is, you're not greater than Abraham, are you? Certainly you're not greater than Abraham. Verse 56, Jesus said this, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it. And he was glad. Look, we could fill a a whole weekend with speculation about what did Abraham actually see and when did he see it and when did he rejoice and what did he rejoice about. I'm just going to sort of cut to the chase and tell you my take on this. I think that Jesus is driving us to think about Abraham and in particular to think about Abraham's faith. His faith looking forward to what God would do. Abraham's whole story begins with faith. When you meet him in Genesis 12, the Lord appears to him and says, leave your home, leave your kindred, go to a place that I'm going to tell you when you get there. And by faith, he just packs up and he goes. Just a few chapters later, we talked about Genesis 15, 6 last week. The Lord is making a promise to Abraham. And Genesis 15, 6 says, Abraham, he believed the Lord and the Lord credited it to him as righteousness. He had faith in Yahweh and faith in his promise. 
All of that culminates when you get to Genesis 22, one of the very last episodes of Abraham's life, where the Lord appears to Abraham. Such a strange story to us. The Lord appears to Abraham and he says, Take your son, your only son, Isaac, the one you love, and offer him as a burnt offering, a burnt sacrifice on the place that I'll show you. We read that story and we think, what in the world is happening here? But I think Abraham understood God was calling in his debt, in particular his sin debt. And God was teaching Abraham, the wages of sin is death. You and your people are guilty of sin. And there must be a death. And the Lord is calling it in on Isaac. And so he takes him. They go to Mount Moriah and the book of Hebrews looks back on this episode And the book of Hebrews says this, By faith he believed when he was tested. He offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, God said this about Isaac, Through Isaac your offspring will be named. Abraham, he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. He did it all trusting the Lord. He didn't have it all figured out. Faith never has it all figured out. But faith trusts the one who's made the promise. And Abraham took his son and he took him to that mountain and he was prepared to offer him as a burnt offering. And he didn't have all the pieces in place, but he went away knowing a couple of things. Number one, he knew God will preserve this promised line through Isaac. He will keep this line alive until the Messiah comes. And secondly, most importantly, Abraham learned that on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. On the mountain of the Lord, God himself will provide the sacrifice. We won't provide the sacrifice. We can't provide the sacrifice. But on the mountain of the Lord, that sacrifice will be provided. And Abraham looked forward in faith after that moment. And he knew this line will continue until the Messiah comes And on the mountain, the Lord will provide the sacrifice. And for generations, Abraham's descendants walked by Mount Moriah and they walked by that mountain and they looked up at the peak and they looked at each other and they said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided someday. And about 2,000 years ago, just in the area of Mount Moriah, a Jewish man from Nazareth was led out of the city, carried the wood, up the hill, just like Isaac did. And he gave his life on the cross as a sacrifice. Our sin debt was called in, and it was called in on Jesus. And he died that we could have life. The Lord provided that sacrifice. And when Jesus appeals to Abraham, and he says, Abraham saw it, he's saying, Abraham looked forward, and he saw it by faith. And if he was here today, he would say, we look back. Abraham looked forward, we look back. We all look to the cross where Jesus died that we might have life. Look at the scriptures, John 8, 56 and 57. Jesus says, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and he was glad. The Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old. And you've seen Abraham. 50 was the age that the Levites retired. Essentially, they're saying, You're a working man. You don't even have a social security card. You said you saw Abraham. You're not even on Medicare. 
What in the world? You're not even 50 years old yet and you've seen Abraham. And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Here's the third truth I want you to see. Our Savior is the pre-existent creator. Our Savior, Jesus, is the pre-existent creator. From our perspective, reading the conversation, we see the breakdown. We see the confusion. The Jews are thinking earthly timelines, and they're trying to crunch the numbers in, the head, in their heads, and it's not even close. Like They know how old Jesus is. He's not even 50. He's early to mid-30s, and they know how long ago Abraham lived and when he died, and they're trying to put it all together, and they say, this just doesn't add up. And Jesus says... Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. If he was only trying to make a point about how old he was, he would have said, grammatically, before Abraham was, I was. That would be the correct grammar. That would be the the past tense that you would expect if he's just talking about timelines. Instead, Jesus looks at them, and using bad grammar, he makes a very true, very important theological point, and he says, before Abraham was, I am. Am. You remember John 6? We looked at it not long ago. Jesus is with the disciples. He sends them out on the Sea of Galilee. A storm breaks out on the sea. They're working and laboring to get to the shore, and Jesus comes out walking on the water. You remember the disciples saw him, and they were terrified. They thought it was a ghost. They were, they were just out of their minds, scared. And Jesus, John 6, 20, said this, It is I, do not be afraid. Literally what he said is, I am, the Greek ego me, it's me, I am, do not be afraid. I am, I am. That's to the disciples on a lake, out in the middle, under the cover of darkness. This is in Jerusalem, at the temple, at a feast with thousands and thousands of people present. And Jesus says the same thing. He looks at these Jews and he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. If you've read the Old Testament, your mind goes to the book of Exodus, right? Moses having a conversation with the Lord, looking at this bush that's burning but not being consumed. The Lord speaks to him and he says, I'm sending you back to Egypt. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to lead my people out. And Moses says, well, what in the world do I say if they ask me who sent me. And the Lord's answer to Moses, you just tell them, I am who I am. You tell them the I am sent you. John has clued us into the whole thing. He's, he's put all the pieces together for us. If you've been reading this gospel, John chapter 1, John said it like this, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning, before Abraham. In the beginning with God. Look, it's Christmas season. We celebrate the birth of Jesus. We celebrate a historical event that took place roughly 2,000 years ago. But we also celebrate the fact that the eternal Word, the one who existed before Abraham, the one who was with God and who was God in the beginning, our pre-existent Creator, is the one who took on human flesh. Our Savior is the pre-existent creator. This is heady stuff. Ed Klink says it like this. I love the quote. 
He's a commentator on the Gospel of John. He says, the one the Jews just mocked as being less than 50 years old is the ageless one, the one through whom time had its origin. Do you see the irony? They've got a 50-year time window on Jesus. He invented time. There's a tragic aspect when you read this story. I think when you read it and you see it, it ought to make you very, very sad. All of these pilgrims have gathered together in Jerusalem. Why are they there? They're celebrating the fall harvest, but they're also looking back. And what are they celebrating? They're celebrating the Exodus when God brought the people out of Egypt. They lived in tents. And they remember Yahweh himself, the great I Am. Moses, who sent you? The I Am sent me. Yahweh lived among them. He dwelt among them. And they look back and they say, do you remember when God himself lived among us? And they're living in tents to remember it all. And in this episode, Jesus pulls back the curtain and he shows them, the one that you're celebrating is here right now. The one who was with your ancestors in the wilderness, living in that tabernacle, it's me, right? This whole feast you've been keeping for thousands and thousands of years, it's about me, and I'm here. Like, the fulfillment is here. And their response is what? Verse 59, they picked up stones to throw at him. They try to put him to death. They understood what Jesus was claiming. They understood that to claim to be God and not to be God was blasphemy and the death penalty and the law for blasphemy was to be stoned. They don't believe Jesus is who he claims to be, so they're going to kill him. They're going to put him to death. This is like, you ever seen the show Undercover Boss? Right? The CEO says, I'm going to go work at KFC in the kitchen and I'm going to batter chicken legs and work with the the regular folk, and nobody knows it's the CEO, nobody knows it's the president, nobody knows it's the owner of the company. And then at the end of the episode, you have this big sort of pullback, this big reveal, and you say, hey, by the way, the guy that's been bread and chicken legs with you, they own the company. That's what's happening here. Hey, this whole thing you're celebrating, he's here. And all they can do is pick up rocks and try to kill him. Wouldn't you like to sit down with John the Apostle and say, John, this is a great story. I mean, this is fascinating stuff. Really, really great. But John, what do you mean in verse 59 when you say Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple? Wouldn't you like to know what that means? Somebody read ahead this week and they came and they asked me, what does that mean? Was that like Remember Saved by the Bell, the old Saved by the Bell show, Zach Morris, the main character? Zach Morris can call time out at any point in the show. And sometimes they're going on in the show, and then he stops and he looks at the camera and says, time out, and everybody freezes, and he can do whatever he wants to do. Was it like that? Was it like Jesus just said, what? Rocks in the hand, time out. Maybe it was much more earthly than that. Maybe it was literally dodging and weaving and Jesus is sort of playing you know dodgeball and maybe the rocks are flying through the air and he's getting away there's a lot of people in Jerusalem they're all in the temple precincts it was very very crowded maybe he's ducking down crawling 
I don't have an answer. John doesn't spell it out for us, does he? He just simply says they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself, and he went out of the temple. I don't know if it was miraculous. I don't know if Jesus is really good at dodging rocks. John doesn't tell us, which means we don't need to know, but what we do know is that it wasn't his time. You remember the verses we read earlier? They went to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because it wasn't his time. Time. They sent officers to arrest Jesus, but nobody touched him because his hour had not yet come. What John is reminding us is not how Jesus escaped, but he's reminding us that the death of Jesus was part of the eternal plan of God. Part of the eternal plan of God. Peter said it like this, Acts chapter 2, verse 23. He said Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. And then he looks at the Jews and he says, you crucified him and you killed him at the hands of lawless men. You're responsible, you did it, but everything you did was only part of the eternal plan of God. When God spoke to Adam and Eve, this was the plan. When he said that someday someone would come and crush the head of the serpent, this was the plan. When God spoke to Abraham and he said, Abraham, through your line, there will be blessing for all of the nations. All of them. This was the plan. When God told the Hebrews the night before the Exodus, you take the lambs and you kill the lambs and you smear the blood on the doorpost so that death can pass over you. This was the plan. And the plan was not that Jesus, the Lamb of God, would die At the Feast of Tabernacles, the plan is that Jesus, the Lamb of God, would die at the Passover. It's about six months away. It's not his time. So John simply tells us he hid himself and he went out of the temple. It's a reminder. The ambiguity of it reminds us that from the beginning, God had a plan to save his people. And the beauty of what we're talking about this morning is that you have a place in that plan. You can find your place in this story. right? You can be someone... Who although you die physically in this life, you know true, lasting, eternal life. Jesus is inviting you into the story. He's inviting you into the plan. And here's the invitation. Believe. Believe. Say, what in the world does it mean to believe in Jesus? I've heard people talk about that my entire life. Well, lucky for you, Jesus explains it. You abide in his word. You love him. You keep his word. You believe. That's the invitation to you this morning. And what's on the table is life. John wrote these things so that we might believe the truth about Jesus and that by believing in him, we would know life. I want to pray for you as we end.